Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. So today I am talking to Ella Williams, who is a 27-year-old assistant clinical psychologist supporting young people who have experienced trauma and attachment difficulties. Ella is also an eating disorder survivor. She has battled with anorexia, starvation and bulimia for 12 years, but thankfully she is now well along the recovery path. After becoming extremely ill at dance college, Ella bravely took a new path and dropped out of dance and began studying psychology in Sheffield. Ella is coming on the podcast today to talk about her healing journey and the ups and downs along this road. She's also going to talk about how much her eating disorder has taught her about herself, her need to conform and fit in and be accepted by society. She says that she realises that it was never about food but ran much deeper. In the podcast as well, Ella is also going to talk about how carers can be supportive and we're going to be referencing the new Maudsley Animal Model. As a carer of someone with an eating disorder, it's often so challenging to know how to support your loved one helpfully. And Ella gives some great tips and sharing, fresh from the trenches, on what parents and carers can really do to help. I know that you're going to find this conversation really insightful and it will inspire hope for the possibility of change and eating disorder recovery. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Ella. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Ella. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hello. It's lovely to be here. So, Ella, could I firstly get you to introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Yes, of course. So my name's Ella Williams. I'm currently an assistant psychologist and work to support children in residential homes. I'm 27, just turned years of age, and I'm already going grey and I'm embracing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good for you, Ella. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What do you attribute the going grey to? Oh, do you know what, Harriet? I'm not too sure. I might is it genetics, but my mum's not going grey. But I think because I'm quite dark, it, yeah, it's just going grey naturally. And I thought, you know what, I can be a silver fox. I can do this. Yeah, no, I like it. I think the silver fox look is quite a nice one, isn't it? There's quite a lot of people really rocking it at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I do. Those are my inspirations right now. <laughs> <laughs> So Ella, as well, just to acknowledge that obviously you have just turned 27, because I think when I did the intro for you, I have said that you're 26. So was your birthday very recently? Yes, it was July the 10th and it was a glorious sunny day. It's quite scary to think I'm 27. You don't really feel it, do you? I still feel like 18. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't change because I'm quite a bit older than you and I still feel the same. (laughs) (laughs) so Ella I know you have your sort of eating disorder recovery story to share with us today and you know truly acknowledge you're still on this healing road although you have made substantial progress sort of through the woods so can you sort of take us back really to sort of you know and tell us a bit about your story and how you've struggled with eating disorders yeah of course so it began at a really young age actually 
I remember I already had like puppy fat when I was younger and I think that's completely normal isn't it for young girls to have puppy fat I remember kind of like staring in the mirror and holding it and wanting to be more like skinny girls I think at that time as well you know the models like Kate Moss who were very tiny and very desirable in the media was promoted and then I turned 13 and I kind of hit puberty and I lost a bit of weight And I think people noticed and I got quite a lot of attention from that, you know, praise as they do. And that's kind of led me to stop eating. So my mum noticed it and she took me to see the GP. And we had a conversation with the GP and I remember him saying, you know, do you think your mum's being dramatic? And of course, I didn't know what it was. At the age of 13, you don't think, oh, I've got an eating disorder. I've got eating difficulties. There's just this voice in your head saying, don't eat. So we didn't kind of support didn't come to fruition. Um, And I'd say from 14 to 18, I struggled with my food. I would have periods where I wouldn't eat. And then when it came four o'clock, obviously, I was absolutely starving. So I'd have like two packets of biscuits and then tea. And then the next day I wouldn't eat because I felt too uncomfortable. And then that kind of happened during this process as well. It's so difficult, I think, to be a teenage girl because you're trying to find yourself. So I was kind of trying to find where, where I am, my identity, peer approval. And of course, you know, being deemed skinny was kind of like a nice identity that I wanted to go towards. So that was kind of bubbling up. And then at 19, I wanted to be a dancer. And I was like, right, I'm going to dance. It's going to be amazing. So I did this dance class in Cardiff. And it was really, really, really good. I had such a passion and love for it. But as I became really more kind of delved into the dancing world, I realised that there was a lot of pressure on young women to look really petite and skinny and I think it's really toxic actually the dance culture and the dance world because I remember you know my teacher was really lovely and supportive but you know he he would comment on weight and I think there was like internalized like fat phobia so I remember being in the leotard and looking in the mirror every day and then I think I associated being the best to being the skinniest and that's when it kind of led to starvation where I became very ill I just wouldn't eat. The more weight I lost, ironically, was I felt fatter because obviously the brain is completely starved. So you have a completely warped view of how you see yourself in the mirror. So it got to six months in the dance. And unfortunately, I had to leave because I was too ill. I was, you know, I was very pale. I didn't have any energy. And during this period, it was quite difficult for me because, you know, I wanted to be a dancer. And then who am I now? What's my identity? So I kind of lay in bed for a good couple of months. And then my mum's an opera singer and she said, why don't we come to a school with special educational needs and sing? So I went there and oh my God, Harriet, it was life changing for me because it took me out of my own head and it gave me a new purpose and a focus on others who were so accepting and non-judgmental. And from that, I had therapy and my therapist said, you know, why don't you do psychology? That would be amazing for you. And, you know, it wasn't, oh, I went to see a therapist and it it all worked out. It was magical. But what it did enable me was to open my eyes to the psychological world. And I went to Sheffield University and it was during then I battled with bulimia. So I think it's quite common, you know, when you starve yourself for so long, when you do reintroduce food, it feels very out of control and chaotic. So although I was really happy in Sheffield doing psychology and learning more about myself, I did develop bulimia. But 
through the years it kind of got better and better and then I finished my university degree and it, it was still lurking it was still lurking but I came back and then I had lots of different roles so one was a teaching assistant and then a DBT practitioner so it was all psychologically related and it was helping young people as well which I was really passionate about because I, I felt like I quite had a difficult start and where I am now so I haven't been bulimic in quite a long time which is amazing and I've had lots of different therapists on the way and they've all been so helpful in their own way and I do think it's a space of time and a reflection and I also think you know the brain doesn't stop developing until you're 25 and it can be so chaotic and that can kind of lead out into your relationship with food so I think with a lot of kind of professional and personal development growing and making new friends along the way and finding my authentic self I am definitely on the road to recovery but it was definitely a struggle. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Ella. Are you all right if I sort of pick up on a few bits from your story? Of course, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I was very struck, you know, you sort of said you sort of, when you were 13, you sort of lost a bit of weight. You know, I know sort of the age you are and all the media back then, it was very much sort of Kate Moss, wasn't it? Nicole Ritchie, these tiny, tiny people who often, you know, yeah, not the greatest role models. So obviously there's a massive influence for you there around body image. Were there sort of any other factors in your life as well in terms of other things that were going on that maybe had an influence on the eating disorder development? I think it was more internal influence because ever since I was young, I didn't want to leave my mum. I was very scared of the world and I was extremely sensitive, extremely, extremely sensitive. So I think, you know, a lot of people with eating disorders, actually the majority are very sensitive, caring people and they care what other people think. So I think it was me comparing myself to other people's bodies. But I also think it was peer influence as well. So when I hit 13, I think I kind of got into a friendship group who weren't necessarily like me in that it was a bit bitchy it was a bit more competitive there was rivalry so I think you know kind of controlling and restricting my eating made me feel more accepted but it was also a sense of control I didn't have a great time in in school with my peers and friends as with a lot of people but I think that definitely impacted as well Mm, yeah no well thank you for sharing that I think you know as you said in a way I think many people with eating disorders are very sensitive people aren't they and you know extremely caring of others but the downside is I think sometimes you know we feel the world so intensely don't we you know we're very perceptive as to other people's feelings we have that strong sense of empathy but it can make the world feel a bit overwhelming at times yeah definitely definitely that's how I felt yeah mm. Yeah. And I think your second point as well about sort of friendship groups as well. I think so many people I've worked with have described perhaps just feeling they didn't completely fit in at secondary school or earlier, you know, or feeling a bit on the outside in some way, perhaps not feeling good enough. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think sadly, it's quite a common experience of so many people just growing up, but it's not the kind of thing that's voiced. And we look at others and assume they've got it all together, but it's not true. No, that's so true. And you know, upon reflection, looking back, you know, the girls that I struggled with, they had struggles too. And I speak openly with my group of friends who I'm still friends with in school. And at the time, you don't share it. But they said, God, I really struggled. And actually, when you, you know, you look back, you think everyone has struggled with 
fitting in and peer identity and friendships it's just people cope differently and I guess you know with a you know some people including myself it was food was the kind of way to kind of cope with it all to kind of like repress your emotions so you know you don't feel as much and it was just like a maladaptive coping strategy really I think Mm, sure so do, do you want to say a little bit more about that actually because I think for many people it's not a conscious decision often is it to restrict food to maybe numb or distract from difficult feelings but you know I think you're certainly not alone there in that perhaps the eating disorder sort of helped you at some points do you think when you were yeah. struggling yeah totally like initially honestly Harry, I do believe this it was adaptive it helped me load when everything was chaos and everything felt overwhelming and my hormones and trying to fit in, I knew I could control my eating. You know, people say, wow, you know, you've got such good self-control. It makes you feel good. I think, you know, by starving yourself, some of the immediate effects are you don't feel your feelings. You kind of disengage from the real world. And actually, if the real world's really, really painful, then that's useful. It's toxic, but it has utility. Yeah, no, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Uh, you know, and I think as well, I think when you first contacted me as well, you said about how your eating disorder had taught you so much about perhaps your need to conform and be accepted. And do you think, although it's obviously maladaptive, do you think it really gave you that back then? Yeah, totally. You know, I think a lot of people, it's diet culture, isn't it? It's pervasive, you know, and it's thank God it's changing now, you know, I'm looking at Instagram, and there's people promoting body diversity, but I remember at age 13, there wasn't any of that, it was, as you said, Kate Moss, Nicole Kidman, tiny, 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 and if you want to fit in, you know, you want your peer approval, you want to be attracted, you want to feel attracted as well, because, you know, you go, it's a time of adolescence, you know, by restricting your weight, you feel like you belong, and that people accept you, and it's really funny, isn't it? Because I remember when I was younger, all I wanted to do was be like others. Like I just want to look like others, be like others. And I think as you grow older, you're like, actually, I really want to be different. Like, and you have more confidence in finding your own style and what you don't like and what you do like. And that's really celebrated. But I think when you're younger, it's so difficult growing up. Cause it's like, I want to be like you. I want to be like you. You know, what is my identity? Let's all into one mold so to speak yeah and I think it's such a great point isn't it I think there's such a strong need isn't there to conform particularly as an adolescent and as we go into emerging adulthood yeah and that really sort of drives and doesn't it sort of comparisons with others and once you get into that and also with all the potential to compare yourself now with social media as well it can be a very slippery slope can't it with sort of a de- real decline in your self-worth Oh, 100%, you know, and I've had to limit my feed now because I'm thinking, you know, I struggled growing up. But I think, you know, for teenagers, you know, who are, you know, 14 or 15 now, my heart does go out to them because I'm thinking, gosh, look at this pressure. You know, I didn't have that pressure as much. But yeah, it is pressurised to look a certain way and it can become all consuming. And, and that's when the eating disorder gets really powerful when you think all your worth is based on your body and making your body look smaller. Yeah, and it sounds like for you that was sort of really exacerbated when you went to dance college. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, it was huge. There was such a focus and, you know, you're in small leotards and tights and you're you're constantly looking at your body every day. And I just remember the smaller I felt, 
the fat rate felt. And I think it's so important to go to the Minnesota starvation study here as well, you know, healthy men, and they were stripped of their calorific intake, and it impacted their mental function, they felt more anxious, distressed. And as you grow smaller, you look in the mirror, and you feel fatter, you can actually see it. And what helped me as well was, I hated it at the time, but my mum took a picture of me. And I could see it objectively. And I was like, but that's not what I see. And that's not how I feel. And of the time when you think you feel fat, you don't, you feel numb, you feel a bit repressed, you don't feel attractive. But I think that can get all muddied and blurred. Mm. Yeah, I think you're so right. I think, you know, when you're in the midst of an eating disorder, you are really quite confused, aren't you? You're quite detached from reality. You're quite cut off from your emotions or perhaps occasionally your emotions are sort of spilling out in quite uncontrollable ways. It's all just a bit of a painful mixture, isn't it? Oh, it's complete chaos, complete chaos. Yeah. You said as well about obviously like your mum, it sounds like was like trying to reach out to you and support you and, you know, perhaps took the photo to try and, you know, give you a bit of a reality check. Did you find as well when you're in the midst of your eating disorder, was your mum sort of able to reach you or were you able to sort of confide in her at all? Or did you sort of shut people out quite a lot when you were struggling? Oh, do you know what, Harriet? That's absolutely such a good question. It's really ironic. It was... So I always like craved my mum's attention, you know, so when I was younger, I never wanted to leave my mum. And I do think, you know, my kind of style of attachment, anxious, ambivalent kind of impacted that. But my mum reached out to me, but it depended on my mood. I remember she went a bit later on in dance college, she kind of took me to the GP again and they weighed me and they said, you know, if you were two pounds under, we can admit you, but because you're not, you know, we can't provide a bed. And, and there's no blame here at all, because I know, you know, things are inundated with work, but there's no support. But my mum did take me and she did try and reach out to me. But I started sleeping in a bed at the age of 19. And my dad was in the other bed. And actually, when my mum spoke to someone, they were like, the more attention you give, the larger the eating disorder grows. And I know that sounds a bit ambivalent and a bit confusing but if you play to the eating disorder where you you know my mum's kind of stopped her life to take care of me then it the eating disorder gets that attention and the more attention the eating disorder gets I found the bigger it grew so it's a really tricky balance for my mum of we kind of say don't be the kangaroo where you put me in the pouch and protect me from the world but be a dolphin and swim beside me and kind of support me but don't mollycoddle the eating disorder because that's how it grows and gets power but it's really tricky isn't it when your daughter them you, you want to support her but I think if it becomes all-consuming in the family that's not necessarily helpful either mm. yeah no it's such great information you're sharing there because I think it's really natural isn't it that when your daughter's struggling or son or any loved one is struggling that if you're the parent or the carer or the spouse or partner that you kind of want to take care of that person and it's very tempting to sort of be the kangaroo with the joey isn't it as you know and for anyone that's listening that doesn't know what we're talking about with these animals it's the new Maudsley animal model so anyone if you want to find out more about that I'll try and remember to put in the show notes but do google as well the new Maudsley animal model and I've also got a podcast episode a few weeks ago which talks more about it 
But it's a great model, isn't it, Ella, to kind of help carers understand the position they need to take in a way to be supportive of you, but as well, not sort of almost feeding the eating disorder and making it bigger. Yeah, it's so tricky. It's such a balance. And you know what? It's a trial and error process. You know, we've gone for years and years. And I think only really in the last two years, we've come to realise, actually, you know, the more attention you feed. What I found beneficial as well for me with someone with an eating disorder and for my parents as well, is if you say, Al, I'm leaving a plate of food on the side. You can have it if you want. If you don't, that's fine. You can have something else in the fridge. But I think the more people go eat, 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 it gets really overwhelming and actually you're more likely to fall and go no I won't eat I won't eat you know the insult is really rebellious and defiant if you tell me to eat I won't because I'm in control but if you say hang on here's a plate on the side have it if you want I found that really really helpful because it took the pressure off and it made me feel still in control yeah oh it's so great Ella just you sharing some of the little nuances of this because I think you know, it sounds like if someone was saying to you, right, Ella, right, here's your plate of food I've prepared for you, eat it now, that would probably feel quite what in the new Maudsley model we describe as the rhino, where perhaps it's mm. quite, there's quite directive communication. But if you're struggling with an eating disorder, it activates your rebel and then you're less likely to eat. Mm. That's exactly mm. what I found. And I think it's really important that obviously people with eating disorders, innately, they want some sort of control like everyone it kind of bleeds out in the form of eating disorder but if people are able to support you whilst you empowering you and you still have a sense of control that will make it I suppose easier it's not easy to eat you know but easier to eat I think yeah so it sounds like you're needing to feel like you're in the driving seat aren't you and in a way you kind of I guess you want your mum and anyone else in your life to be in the kind of perhaps in the back seat a bit kind of like you know <laughs> not telling you how to drive but very much being supportive and on the journey with you but you don't want anyone perhaps telling you how to drive exactly you want to feel that you're making those decisions yourself but other people are yeah other people are kind of in the wings supporting you encouraging you but not kind of yeah. telling you what to do <laughs> no my gosh but it's like any teenager isn't it it's even now if people tell me what to do I'm like oh I really struggle with that. You know, everyone wants a bit of empowerment. So, yeah. 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 Can you describe as well, because I just think just having you here and being the sort of expert on experience, really, can you tell me as well any other sort of things that your family have done that have been very sort of dolphin-esque, which have been particularly helpful? Yes, I love that word dolphin-esque. That is amazing. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So, kind of taking the pressure off encouraging me to kind of go on my activities which I once loved so I love running now and they encourage me to do that but not in a forceful way at all it's just kind of like exploring what I once loved in my childhood before the eating disorder took over but I am conscious hang on am I doing this because I love it or burning calories if I'm burning calories not going to do it because that's not helpful the ways they supported me as well is just getting on with their lives I know that sounds silly but when I was really ill the whole dynamic changed and it was all focused on me which is pressure but carry on with your lives and I know that's so difficult honestly if you know your child is struggling with an eating disorder it's like well how can I how can I even concentrate but the more you live your own life and you role model 
that actually are really holistic and actually there is a life outside of the eating disorder and look how great it is. And if you manage and regulate your own emotions, then you can co-regulate with your child and your child is more likely to feel calm. It's kind of like emotional contagion, you know, eating disorder is really infectious. It wants to get in everyone's head. It wants it to be all consuming. But if you carry on with your lives, do your things, see your friends, look after yourself as well then, you know, your daughters and sons will echo and model that and go, oh, you know, my eating disorder is not the most important thing in the world. And actually, you're going swimming and actually you're going out with your mates and that looks really fun. So that was really helpful as well. I would say as well, my recovery, going out with friends and going out for foods with my boyfriend has helped me so much. I think there's this kind of internalized shame if you eat on your own. If I'm honest, I still have that. But my boyfriend has been so encouraging of going out and cooking food and actually go out with your friends and have what your friends are having. I know there's calories on the menu right now, which I just think is awful. I think, you know, we look at mm. obesity, but what about the prevalence of eating disorders? But if you struggle with that, say to your friends, do you know what? I'll have what you're having and eat with your friends and make it a social thing. So it gets rid of that shame because food is really social and it's really pleasurable. So I think that helps mm. as well. Yeah, brilliant. I think just such golden advice. Thank you, Ella. The sort of social side, it's just kind of like trying to be normal, isn't it? You know, when I say normal, I'm saying that with inverted commas, because what is normal? There is there is no kind of normal, really. But as well, having, you know, being able to though, engage in normal things, because I think the trouble with an eating disorder is that you can become really withdrawn, can't you? And you can almost be kind of feel perhaps a bit labelled with this mental health condition. So you feel very separate yeah. from your friends and your peers. And then that isolates you more. And the eating disorder mm-hmm. probably is something to cling to more. So I think just great tips there. And also, I think, you know, like you're talking about, like with your family and just seeing them going out and living their lives, because it is mm-hmm. so understandable to get so drawn in isn't it to be perhaps mm. kangarooing and focusing on the eating disorder so much but again it doesn't actually help it sort of it almost kind of feeds the eating disorder doesn't it mm. it's just great to hear you saying these things out loud as someone who's kind of been in the trenches very recently oh. and has first-hand experience yeah totally and I would say you know there are days where I still feel in the trenches but it's kind of a process of just taking it day by day and also don't beat yourself up if yesterday you felt oh it was a bit just try again today you know just keep trying keep pushing through and it it definitely does get better I definitely agree with the whole eating disorder Harriet you mentioned about it's really ironic because eating disorder like fuels isolation but then the eating disorder can almost become your friend a really really bad friend a very unhealthy friend (laughs) you know a terrible friend but a friend because you rely on it and you know, if the world feels scary, you've got that eating disorder to go to. And I do believe that eating disorder is absolutely not the whole individual. It's a part of you and it's it's become a nasty voice. And it's kind of like a bullying friend. And actually, what you're doing, you know, with, with an actual friend who bullies you, you get rid of it and you try and get rid of it. And it's really difficult to get rid of it. But that's kind of like the eating disorder. It's a voice. It's not a very nice friend. And it's not all of you. It's part of you. And it's really difficult that it's very mean to you and it bullies you and it tells you lies and it tells you things that just aren't true. So Ella, you've obviously done a lot of work on yourself. You said you've had different therapies over the years, different therapists, and it sounds like, you know, the combination of all those different interventions has actually been really helpful for you. 
Could you share some of the perhaps the key things from therapy that have really helped you along this road? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I would say in my earlier um, time, it was the therapist who kind of advised me to do psychology or suggested it, kind of delved into my early childhood, kind of me to think about little Ella and eight-year-old Ella who thought she was fat from eating a cake and kind of nurture her and oh my gosh I cried my eyes were so red and I initially I was like no that's not gonna work that's not gonna work but when you really get into that it's like oh gosh I have a lot of empathy for you and it's kind of a reminder of taking you through the childhood process and what happened and that gave me great knowledge and understanding but I think sometimes it made me feel a bit stuck it's like hmm, okay I know all this knowledge where to go now Recently, I've had a nutritionist and a CBT therapist, and that's been so useful. I think it's really good to have a nutritionist because it says, look, this is actually what you need to maintain your set point. You know, we've all got different bodies, but this is what you need to function, you know. And then the CBT therapist helped me on my journey because she kind of said, "Okay, what are the thoughts that are stopping you? And I'd have to like explore those thoughts and write down those thoughts and then challenge them. And what I noticed as well, it was always the same thing. So it wasn't necessary to do with food because once you kind of eat a consistent diet, it becomes other thoughts. So it's like and it all boils down to I'm not good enough. Others are going to reject me. I'm going to get fired you know they're not going to like me it boils down to that it wasn't about the food it was about the core beliefs and I think once a therapist encourage you to kind of blur out the food but find out what's going underneath for you is it that you don't feel good enough is it that you don't feel attractive is it feel you feel a bit lonely and then you can kind of work with it and go actually these are the beliefs that I've developed in childhood but they're not necessarily true and what can help me how can I reframe this what can I do I think you know finding activities you really enjoy helps and then the analogy of forgive me if I say it incorrectly but it was really powerful when she said it and I hope I could do it justice but it's kind of like going on a train and you rip up pieces of paper and you throw them to keep the tigers out and you keep doing that keep ripping the paper throw out the windows to keep the tigers away and if you're constantly doing that throughout your life nothing changes you have to stop throwing the paper and think okay if the tiger's going to come and eat me they're going to come and eat me and it's the same with eating and food okay what if I put on loads of weight what if I feel out of control well if I don't try and if I don't risk I'll never know and there's a risk of being rejected there's a risk of being abandoned there's a risk of you know putting on millions and millions of weight which won't happen but those are your fears but if you keep starving if you keep restricting nothing's going to change and if you keep ripping the paper and throw it out the way the tigers won't come but you won't realize that the tigers don't exist in the first place and that's kind of like facing your fears just do it try and you know a week and, and see do your fears come true risk it am I rejected by everyone or am I able to live a more rich and happy life and it's so scary it is so 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 scary I think with the support and knowing okay I'm going to take risk I'm going to take a step in and it's going to be very uncertain it's going to I don't know what's going to happen but I'm just going to try it and I think once you try it and given it a few months you're like oh my god my fears the worst fears don't come true. I'm not rejected. I'm still loved. And actually, I'm loved for being me. Because when you're starving yourself, you know, 
it's not like you never believe you can have be unconditionally accepted and loved but you find out wow I have unconditional love and acceptance and actually I'm free but the process you have to risk and that's really difficult but that's what the most recent CBT therapist taught me and that was extremely beneficial. Mm-hmm. Sounds like such valuable advice because I think so often we get caught in our heads, don't we, of sort of overthinking things and you know just going round and round and round with our sort of thoughts, but not actually taking any different action. And obviously, when we're caught up in our thoughts, we can sort of catastrophize, can't we? And just like you're talking mm-hmm. about in a way, like expecting these tigers almost to come and get you, but. Mm-hmm it's through action and almost taking those steps out of your comfort zone that you can experiment and also I guess get new information because of if you're just thinking in your head about what's going to happen you don't really get the chance if you're not actually acting it out you don't get the chance to gather new information do you and to challenge those beliefs but it sounds like for you through taking the action stepping out your comfort zone you're kind of still here, you've survived. And sometimes the tigers don't come. And I guess perhaps even if the tiger did come, you're still here anyway. Yeah, you know, I'll work with a tiger, you know. (laughs) You've got to take risks and it's so scary. And I think as well, Harriet, the more you avoid, the bigger the fear grows. It's like with anything, right? So basically, I lost my driving license, yeah. I didn't apply for one for like three months. I've grown a massive fear. I am petrified of getting a driver's license because I avoided it. And I did it today and I thought, oh, that wasn't too bad. And I think, you know, people with an eating disorder, the more you avoid food, the bigger the fear gets. And it's this massive thing because you avoid. And I think avoidance causes anxiety and anxiety causes avoidance. So if you stop avoiding and gently introduce, what I found really useful as well is the traffic light system. So you can kind of put in what is your scariest food. So scariest for me was chocolate red. And then amber would be pasta, not so scary. And then green would be sweet potato. And you can go through a process of saying, right, I'll do the green foods first, sweet potato I'll eat. Then the uh, amber foods, I'll try a bit of pasta. And then when you feel a bit more comfortable, but you'll never feel that comfortable, eat the chocolate. So it's it's kind of a process. But I know for other people, what works is going all in, just saying, right, I'm just going to have, you know, what I want. But for me, it was the kind of gradual process work for me personally. Mm, yeah well thanks for sharing that because I think for many people actually breaking it down into the small incremental steps is the way that just makes it more manageable and you know I think as we were saying before we sort of came on live on the podcast there's no kind of right way to recover is there it's very individual and for some people perhaps just going all in head first in the deep end absolutely that's what they want to do but I know from my experience, I think for many people, sometimes just taking those little steps and almost like adjusting your comfort zone bit by bit just makes it a bit more doable sometimes. Yeah. And it's like every time I have breakfast, I honestly, I'm like, I feel so empowered now. It's like a really gradual process, but it's like, oh, I can do this and that. Because every time you challenge those negative thoughts, disprove them you're going actually no I am worthy and then you find out that when you disprove those negative thoughts everyone has negative thoughts but the negative thoughts that are in other aspects of life you go hang on I haven't listened to you when I ate my breakfast I'm not going to listen to you in this and slow and gradual steps your self-esteem and your your sense of self-empowerment gradually increases and it's a beautiful process it's tricky 
but yeah I agree with you how for me personally anyway it's a gradual process of going yeah I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that and then it grows your self-esteem grows and yeah it's lovely so Ellie you've touched on several different elements that have really helped you like the psychology and the nutritionist and the you know the different kinds of therapy you've had social eating kind of going out with your boyfriend and having purpose and meaning and something sort of that's distraction away from yourself is there anything else that you'd like to add to the whole kind of mix that you think has been really instrumental in your recovery I think feeling my feelings and saying my needs I think for people with eating disorders again so caring and sensitive and you've probably repressed so many emotions and you don't really know what your feelings are and you don't really know how to say needs and I am a massive people pleaser so saying my needs is horrific (laughs) before I say how I actually want to feel and think oh this might cause a bit of stir or the other person might not like to hear it every time I do it I'm like oh yay and the outcome is never (laughs) as bad as I think so I think you know it could be little things like someone annoyed you or someone said a comment and you didn't agree with it or it was a bit mean if you say oh I didn't really appreciate that comment or if you're knackered on the weekend and you'll go I've done this I do this I do this and then you're like actually I really want a weekend to have a bath and read a book and drink hot chocolate say that say do you know what I've had a really stressful week what I need right now is a weekend and you you're able to give more I think again you know people with disorders caring and sensitive and wonderful people but they can neglect their own needs so I think saying their needs and finding out what do I need today even though it can be really tricky really works and also not saying yes to everything I'm such a yes woman I'm like yes I'll do this and then I'm like oh gosh I can't do this so just pausing before saying yes to people works for me as well yeah I think such great advice I know something that's definitely something I have struggled with in my own recovery it's quite addictive isn't it people pleasing because I think when you're really used to creating harmony going with the flow being tuned into other people's feelings and also you don't often realize you're doing it do you I don't know if you found this but it almost just becomes a default way of being that if someone even asked you I think back in the day when I was struggling if someone had asked me you know what do you think or feel about this I just wouldn't have had a clue because I was so tuned into everybody else (laughs) yeah I was like I I feel how you feel but I do think that's a survival strategy like developed in childhood you know like fight fight freeze and fawn fawn is a new survival strategy so this was and this is why people pleasing is so hard not to do because you think to survive to live yeah I need to people please I need to make sure everyone's okay but actually are you okay and the more love you give yourself the more you're able to give love to others and you really deserve that because you know for the listeners to your podcast I believe that wonderful empathetic attuned people and like imagine if you gave yourself half the love you give to everyone else you know and you deserve all that love you really do but it can be so tricky at the same time but yeah just it's very tricky isn't it Harriet I still do it now (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's really a hard thing to break and I think like you're saying though it's a survival strategy isn't it it's not something that anyone's doing to be manipulative or you know it's something that you're just doing to survive and it like you said it's something we probably did from early in childhood so it's got quite deep roots hasn't it it feels very unnatural not to please all the time oh so unnatural it's icky isn't it saying you need it's so icky <laughs> but then after you're like yeah that's not so icky and actually I feel good for it 
Yeah. Well, Ella, I just want to just thank you so much. I think you have just offered up so much great advice and support and information there and been really open with your story, being incredibly vulnerable, which I think is just is so helpful just to kind of really get such a deep understanding and also for sharing all the information about your family and the animal model as well. I think that's just kind of golden for people to be able to hear what really helps because I think it goes against our intuition as well sometimes doesn't it what feels logical you know we feel like as a parent we need to rhino we need to kangaroo and joey and so hearing you just talking about some of these you know themes has just been really invaluable so thank you for everything you've shared oh no thank you honestly it's been absolutely amazing to kind of share my experience and the opportunity to come in and talk to you as I said I've listened to you for so many years you've helped me so much so I'm like ah I'm very excited (laughs) and I'm glad I can help those who listen to this podcast. So Ella where can people find you or reach out to you because I'm sure some people will want to touch base with you after this after sort of hearing your story and it will really resonate with some of the things you've been talking about. Yeah so my Instagram is Ella underscore Wills so Wills is w-i-l-l-s-s and yeah you can find me on there I'm literally happy to answer any questions anyone has because you know I'm 27 now and the process took have been really difficult for anyone who kind of has any more questions or wants support with their recovery or just someone's kind of like relates you to what they're going through I am here yeah Lovely. Thank you so much, Ella. So I'll make sure I put your Instagram contacts in the show notes and I'm sure you will get people reaching out to you. Lush. Thank you, Harriet. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Ella's info in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder you enjoy this podcast i'd be so grateful if you would follow rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners thank you so much for listening today and i look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon